Hi everybody, I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number 16 here in the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. I'm here with my partner in this, Luke Doris. Hello. Hello. How's your uh, non-hurricane week? We like that. We do like it that way. Let's keep it that way. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) we're trying. We'll talk about what's going on uh, down in the Caribbean here in just a moment. But as I said, this is podcast number 16. In just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Dr. Mike Brennan. He's the branch chief of the Hurricane Specialist Unit at the National Hurricane Center. We'll ask him what in the heck a branch chief is. And we'll talk about hurricane season 2017 and the things they're uh, working on for the future at the National Hurricane Center. Mike and the team down there are working on all kinds of things, and it's uh, really kind of exciting. And last week we talked with uh, Dr. Marshall Shepard, and if you recall that uh, one of the issues that we we had talked about and had resurfaced since Florence Mm -hmm. was the question of whether the Sanford Simpson wind scale, the category that the storm is, whether that should be abandoned, modified, or changed. Is it confusing? We'll talk about that. So that's all coming up here in just a moment. Uh, We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, October 3rd, 2018. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune in to Local 10 in South Florida or Local10.com on your computer. Or, of course, there's the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app, and you'll get the current information. And this podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe, Rain or Shine, Win Big, Visit Mikasuki.com and discover the winner in you. Okay, Luke, um, we've been investigating uh, down in the Caribbean what's going on down there. And also, the models have been persistent about developing some kind of low pressure uh, not too far from South Florida or moving something in our direction uh, next week. And it seems like those are two separate, completely different entities they just happen to kind of be in the same neighborhood yeah there's so we start in the caribbean the one there's an area that the national hurricane center has a 30 percent chance of development over five days uh that's on the caribbean that is correct me if i'm wrong related to the central american gyre right that's getting going for us a little bit yeah and it's an area yes but on our side of central america it's just the pressures are low in the southern caribbean as they often are and in october that's where a variety of things come together that can encourage low-pressure system systems to develop there, although it looks like that, if it develops, will, will go slowly and will probably drift a little bit to the northwest. Now, yesterday, it was a little scary yesterday because yesterday on the right flank of that, you could see this rotation. We see all these thunderstorms mm-hmm. blowing up, and the models were kind of picking up on that. But that appeared to be a mid-level rotation. It looked like the winds were just coming out of the east at the surface there. And uh, the models were kind of blowing that up. But as that's kind of calmed down, the models have, have gotten over that a bit. And now now they look like the low pressure in the Caribbean kind of goes north or northwest and we have this other system, though, that comes from a different direction. So that one is, it's a weird one, and we it doesn't even really exist yet. <laughs> so is it a figment of the model's imagination? Is it something that could uh, eventually come? But if you track it back, it looks like it begins uh, over land in Canada, um, you know, or uh, in the upper levels of the atmosphere, the mid-levels of the atmosphere, kind of rides around what is now Hurricane Leslie. And it drops into the low-pressure system associated with Leslie. Yeah, they, it, it rides around that and then breaks free from there, and then we could get some sort of maybe non-tropical or subtropical system out of that if it if it were to even develop at all, yeah. if, if it were to do anything. We just, it's too far out. And you described earlier kind of like a, a marble that's on a move from a long way away. Where is it going to end up? We don't really know. So It's kind of, you know, we, we were talking about Plinko in the weather office. It's kind of like Plinko, right? And this yeah. is the marble, and where is it going to end up at, at the bottom? And uh, you use the word could, and could is the really operative word because we're talking about uh, more than a week away of a system that, uh, as often happens in October, by the way, we get these freaky oddball systems, and later on we're going to talk about a very annoying hurricane that, that came along in 1966 here called Hurricane Inez, uh, and that was, was, again, an October hurricane, and odd things happen in October. We also have Leslie out there, 
which is a uh, now a hurricane, forecast to stay a hurricane for a while. It's just retreading the same piece of ocean until it gets picked up and uh, kind of zooms off toward Europe eventually. No threat to the U.S. Except away. for what's going on in the water. And so for boaters and for people at the beaches all along the U.S. coast and the Caribbean coast, there's a threat from the uh, ocean because there's a lot of extra energy mm-hmm. uh, in the ocean. But other than that, uh, we're good. And elsewhere in the tropics, there's all kind of stuff going on in the Pacific. Uh, there's a really interesting, very strong hurricane west of Hawaii that was threatening something called the Johnston Atoll. Is that how you pronounce it? What's How do you mm. pronounce that word? Atoll. Atoll, I guess. Atoll? Atoll. Atoll, maybe. Yes. Anyway, uh, the Johnston Atoll, uh, west of Hawaii, there is actually a military base on there where they did nuclear explosions and they store chemical weapons and whatnot out there, uh, like old used stuff. It's abandoned now. And here is this Category 5-ish hurricane heading toward it. So... Um, anyway, that was an interesting juxtaposition of really bad stuff on the on the ground and uh, and this big hurricane coming. I th- uh, exactly how that's all going to work out. I smell it's, a sci-fi movie coming. Exactly, it feels like it. It really does. All right, so that's what's going on uh, in in the tropical world right now. So let's go ahead and turn to uh, Dr. Mike Brennan at the National Hurricane Center. As I said, um, Mike is uh, what's called the branch chief, and the people that make the hurricane warnings and forecasts and write the discussions and a million other things at the Hurricane Center are the hurricane specialists, and the guy who runs that unit was a senior hurricane specialist for, uh, I think, about 10 years, and earlier this year was named branch chief, in other words, the manager of that unit. Uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brian. Thanks. Thanks. Good to talk to you, Luke. It's, you too, it's, bud. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. When you were at NC State, uh, Mike, for for uh, years and years, I guess, because I, I, that's where you went to school, right, for all your schooling, yep. Uh, yep. was it your goal to end up at the National Hurricane Center, or did you have other things in mind? Well, you know, it, 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 it was something I was interested in, but it wasn't a specific goal. It's funny how, you know, people's career paths sort of develop based on, you know, being in the right place at the right time. You know, my my work I did in graduate school and research was much more mid-latitude synoptic meteorology, you know, looking at cold air damming east of the Appalachians and how it erodes, and then also looking at uh, precipitation distribution and extratropical cyclones. Uh, but when I finished my, my Ph.D. work, I had a an opportunity to come down to the Hurricane Center as a, in a postdoc position and work on the research to operational transition for a uh, a mouthful of a term called satellite ocean vector winds or scatterometry. And I had done a lot of real operationally focused research in my time in graduate school uh, at NC State working with weather service offices. And I did have a lot of remote sensing experience, but I had a lot of uh, R2O experience. So that that ended up being a good fit. And and my career path sort of opened up from there. And uh, I guess that was about the time that the idea of research to operations, uh, people became really aware that that was perhaps a shortcoming in the systems of, of uh, we have this research going on on one side, the Hurricane Center and operations on the other side, and a lot of people were talking about merging a, a, at that time. Yeah, there was a big effort um, in the Weather Service back in the 90s called Star that actually still goes on now where they actually have you know, funded work at different universities to try to tackle operational uh, forecast issues in different parts of the country and then develop projects and try to find uh, pieces of research that can be done to actually contribute to uh, to improving forecasts for, say, heavy precipitation or winter storms or whatever they might be, tropical cyclone wind forecasting. And so uh, so I was lucky enough to be involved in one of those during my time in graduate school, and that sort of paved the way. But that's still a big problem today, trying to take all the great basic research that goes on in the atmospheric science community and then get it over the fence to be uh, applied enough that the operational folks are actually making making forecasts and issuing warnings and helping people make decisions based uh, to, to try to avoid or deal with hazardous weather can use that research to help improve what they do. Mike, for all those years that uh, Dr. James Franklin was the branch chief there, I always wanted to ask, what in the heck does a branch chief do? Besides, I know, be the manager kind of of the, of the hurricane specialist, but what is your job now? 
Well, my job is to sort of run the unit. So I, you know, I'm in charge of you know, making all everything from making the schedule to uh, filling vacancies. Oh, that sounds to like fun. Running policy, I'm involved. Uh, this position is pretty heavily involved in the tropical cyclone program, uh, programmatic aspects of the of the tropical cyclone program and the weather service with the weather forecast offices and the regions and the central pacific hurricane center so there's a a policy aspect of it too but you know i'm in charge of making sure that everybody in the unit follows the the procedures and the rules that we all have laid out so that our products are uh, you know consistent and of high quality and everybody knows how what they are going to get and expect during an event and and to try to oversee all of that and i also do a fair number of uh, briefings for uh, emergency managers, for the media during events, and sort of very high-level messaging and coordination within the Hurricane Center and then also within the rest of the Weather Service in terms of things like scheduling the G4 jet to fly or asking for uh, supplemental soundings ahead of a storm. All those things sort of fall under my umbrella at this point. And I still also work shifts and do forecasts occasionally and fill in when when needed or come in to help out if things get really busy. So I, I still maintain that aspect of the job as well. One of the themes that we seem to always come back to on this podcast is communicating is hard. <laughs> yes. It's difficult to take these, you know, complex or abstract ideas and to get the words out or get the graphic out where somebody can use it in a digestible form. And the hurricane specialists, they have to be both really good scientists, great, you know, understanding of the research, of the operations, and they have to have really strong communication skills. So every six hours, you have a detailed and clear discussion that's got to be written for a number of different users and consumers. And not every meteorologist that comes along, I would think would be very good at that. That's a very complex and difficult job. So is that one of the challenges, the communication part of it? And what's the hardest part of the job? Yeah, the communication is always a real challenging aspect because, again, as you mentioned, we're communicating at multiple different levels. We're communicating to other scientists, other meteorologists, to the general public, to people in other countries, to the research community, to emergency managers, to uh, just people trying to deal with uh, the threats that are coming from a hurricane. So you have to be able to communicate on a very, very wide number of levels, all the way from the very high level where you might be giving a presentation to the scientific meeting, all the way down to the level where you're talking to the general public. Somebody calls on the telephone and wants to know what's going on or what the threat might be at their house and to everything in between where we're working with everybody like you guys in the media to help get the word out to helping emergency managers interpret and understand our products. So the job's got a lot of different aspects to it. And you mentioned the operational communication, the actually writing the products and, and, and the communication there. But we do a tremendous amount of training and, and outreach in the off-season where we actually teach people about NHC's products and about the uncertainty and how to make decisions based off things like wind speed probabilities and storm surge information about evacuations. And so there's multiple, multiple aspects of the job and finding the right people that can do both the science aspect and the communication part is, uh, is, is you know, that's why it's, uh, you know, sometimes can be tough to find people who can sort of, sort of uh, span that entire spectrum. Yeah, it's a bit of a left brain, right brain thing that, yep. that uh, some people have a little bit of both, which is a good thing. Let's yeah. talk, uh, talk, uh, Mike, uh, a bit about Hurricane Florence. It, it seemed yep. like it seemed like that storm was just doing the opposite of what the forecast was saying in terms of intensity there on the front end and, and on the back end. Do you think of that as a surprise or kind of within expectations or just simply a statement on the state of the science as it relates to forecasting the intensity of the storm? Well, the first the first uh, episode of rapid intensification that Florence underwent, I think you could characterize as as pretty unexpected. I mean, I, I remember making a couple of the forecasts early on in Florence's lifespan and looking at the guidance, the intensity guidance that we have, and and it was just flat. You know, it suggested it would be, be a mar, you know kind of a mid grade tropical storm for the next several days. And, and the water wasn't that terribly warm where right. where it was doing this, right? Right. It wasn't a blatantly obvious situation where you would expect rapid intensification, where the you know, SSTs are, you know, 28 or 29C or something, mm -hmm. and, the, and then the shear didn't look very low. I mean, it didn't look, didn't look too high, but it wasn't down less than 10 knots where you would, you know, sort of be on the lookout for those kind of signals. And obviously the models weren't picking up on it. It's challenging in those situations where you have a storm far out away from land. You don't have anything in the way of really observations other than satellite data. And so you don't really have an idea of what's going on in the core of the storm, and you don't have a lot of great initial condition data for the models like you would if you could have the P3 fly and sample the storm with the tailed Doppler radar and get an idea of what the structure looks like. So those are those are always more challenging. Now, the second 
period of RI that Florence underwent was much better anticipated. All of the models were picking up on it. You could see signals in the statistical models. It was much more of a classic kind of RI situation with very warm water, very low shear. You would even see signs of it in the global models. They were able to pick up on the fact that Florence was going to deepen quite quickly. And then the the quick weakening we saw before landfall seemed to be related to a eyewall replacement cycle that sort of started but never was able to complete because it looked like the shear picked up a little bit and there was some dry air that got into the circulation. So that sort of disrupted its ability to come back from that eyewall cycle. But it remained a very, very deep cyclone. It's just that the energy spread out and you got this much larger outer wind field and a, a, a less sharp peak in the wind field. So in some ways, while the, the peak winds went down, the expansion of the wind field was in some ways worse for things like storm surge along the North Carolina coast. Cause, and that in combination with the slow forward speed, just you had this tremendous onshore flow into the North Carolina coast and up into the Pamlico Sound and Noose River places where we, we saw the worst storm surge. So that, that that weakening and spreading out of the wind field was, was not a good thing. So, so is it fair that people really should just accept the fact that, that the science on intensity is is just uh, has a lot of latitude about it. We yeah. do the best we can, but there are factors that we still cannot detect. Yeah, we've. I mean, we've made progress. We have seen some of the intensity errors start to come down in the past few years, but we're certainly not where we need to be and, and uh, not where we want to be in terms of especially these rapid changes. You know, I think I, I remember talking about the numbers from 2017. There were something like 39 instances of rapid intensification in the Atlantic, and we, we forecast, I think, six of them correctly, which doesn't sound like a great number, but 10 or 15 years ago, that number almost certainly would have been zero. So we're, we're starting to get there. But again, knowing the knowing the details of exactly when RI will start and how long it will last and then trying to time things like these eyewall cycles and how they might evolve is really uh, really a big challenge still. So and, and the guidance that we have in terms of the models aren't very good at distinguishing some of these situations from where, where the environment looks great, but the storm doesn't quite have the structure to take advantage of it. So trying to sort out the details is always tricky. You can see what the environment looks like, and it might be supportive of it, but the storm isn't quite ready to, to go, there, go there yet. Well, on the other hand, the track forecast was incredible, especially for a slow-moving storm, which are susceptible to you know greater changes and a more difficult forecast. And we're talking days in advance. Uh, the rainfall forecast as well was just incredible. I've seen some of the images of the forecast uh, and then compared to the actual rainfall, and it's just it's remarkable. Yet some people, they still think that the storm, or have said that the storm was worse than expected, and do you think that the intensity forecasts, the Saffir Simpson scale, one through five, what category is it? Does that dominate the forecast uh, conversation too much and therefore the public's understanding of what the storm is and its threats that come with it? Yeah, there's a little bit of a danger of that. It's something that the media tends to pick up on really heavily. The category, you always see it on TV. It's 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 right up front and center. It's it's actually something we've made a conscious effort to de-emphasize here at the Hurricane Center in the past few years is to focus less on the category and focus more on the specific hazards like rainfall, like storm surge. Because again, this the Saffir Simpson category only tells you about wind, and it's it's not an it's not that the number isn't useful. It's useful to tell you about what the wind damage potential is from the storm. But that's basically it. It doesn't tell you anything about rainfall. It doesn't really tell you much about storm surge. And since the water hazards are the ones that kill the most people, we really tried to emphasize those hazards uh, uh, more in our products. And we certainly started doing that very early on in Florence really emphasizing the heavy rain. As you mentioned, that that was generally well forecast because that's so tied to the track forecast, and we were able to capture that the fact that Florence was going to slow down dramatically as it neared landfall and moved inland, so that rainfall forecast was able to, to, uh, to capture those details and really use that to help scope out what the rainfall you know, general distribution would look like. But even several days in advance before the details came into focus, we were able to pretty confidently say that there was going to be life-threatening flooding across portions of, of North Carolina and South Carolina you know, many days in advance. And, and in addition, the storm surge hazard which has the ability to kill the most people in tropical cyclones, we were able to anticipate that pretty well, too. 
Uh, again, we might have been anticipating a stronger storm initially at landfall, but the storm surge values really didn't change very much because as Florence's peak winds weakened, that wind field spread out. And because it was moving so slowly, you had the onshore flow over multiple tide cycles, and that really was effective at pushing the water inland and keeping it bottled up into places like the Noose River and like New Bern, for example, or, or other places along the North Carolina coast. And, and so the storm surge uh, forecasts you know, were, were pretty successful. Mike, it occurs to me that the category of the storm, in terms of what it's going to be in theory, in terms of the forecast at uh, landfall, is known days and days in advance. Uh, you know, the media and the forecast itself is talking about, okay, Florence is expected to be a Category 3 at landfall five days in advance. But the real messaging for the other threats really only comes out in detail uh, about two days in advance, two and a half days in advance. Do you feel the uh, the imbalance there in the messaging uh, in the overall system, uh, that the, the, just the way the combination of the science and the communications come together? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. You know, you have to think about the – we have to – well, we make a wind forecast for the cyclone because for certainly for the – interest out over the open ocean, the marine interests that are affected by every tropical storm and hurricane, they really do need to know what the winds are because that's the primary hazard, the winds and the waves they generate. So that's a really vital piece of information for them. They're not care- they don't care about rain and storm surge, uh, you know, if you're in uh, you know, a cargo ship or a cruise liner or whatever and you're trying to avoid the storm, you're mainly concerned about the wind. The, uh, the hazards on land that we really try to focus more on the water with the flooding and the storm surge, the that they're very sensitive to, to different to, uh, to sort of these small scale changes, especially storm surge and the exact track or the exact size or structure of the storm. And, and right now, the forecast certainty isn't there to really start giving, for example, detailed storm surge uh, forecast numbers like three or four days in advance. Although we know that people are making decisions about evacuations and preparations out that far, so that's one of the goals of the next hurricane forecast improvement project plan is to try to extend that real-time storm surge information out to 72 hours before landfall instead of 48. But we have to better constrain the the track and the intensity and structure uncertainty to really be able to do that. Now, emergency managers can go look at moms and meows, which are basically sort of uh, reasonable, you know, worst-case scenarios for storm surge given different situations, what, how strong the storm is, how where it's moving, its forward speed, and that can give them a rough idea of what the vulnerability might be to storm surge from a given storm. But we know that, say, for example, our average intensity forecast error three or four days out might be a whole category. So we generally tell emergency managers to, to, for a safety margin, to plan for something that might be a little stronger than our official forecast in case our forecast is too low. But a lot of the probabilistic products we have, like P-Surge that drive the storm surge warning and the storm surge potential flooding map or inundation graphic, do sort of capture that uncertainty in there. So they account for that, and they account for uncertainty in the track and the intensity and the size of the storm. So that's that's all captured in there. It's just that we need to try to push it out a little farther in time, and, and we're hoping to do that in the next few years. Okay, so we talked about the intensity and the forecast there. What, what about the cone? I, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you have some sort of analytics where you c- can determine or, or see uh, what the people are looking at when they go to the NHC website, but maybe that will tell you, you know, just, just what people are going there for. I would imagine it's the cone. And does the cone get more attention by the public than it deserves, do you think? Yeah, the cone, we, we did go back and look. I, I don't know if we've seen all the statistics from, say, Florence, but I remember from last year with Irma and Harvey Maria that most people, if you look at the, the average user in the NHC website, they come and they look at the front page graphic and they might click on one thing and it's usually the cone and then they, then they sort of move on. So we realize that the cone is not a perfect perfect tool. You know, it's not an impact graphic. It only tells you something about where the center of the storm might go. And we actually have some social science work through HVIP and through some of the hurricane supplemental projects that are going to look at the cone graphics specifically and try to get a better sense of how all the different user communities we have are using the cone, all the way from very sophisticated users who clearly know what it means down to the general public that might not quite understand it, and see if the cone graphic needs to be uh, redesigned or, or, or retired and replaced with something else. And we're actually going to take sort of a systematic look at the entire Weather Service Tropical Cyclone product suite 
and see what we need, what works, what doesn't work, and what might need to change. So that that's all going to be happening in the next few years. So when you say the next few years, is there is a is there any definite timetable at this point uh, that we could expect? Sort of cone 2.0 or something else. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the projects are just getting started at this point in time. So uh, you know, Congress passed some supplemental funding last year, and the new HFIP is just taking shape. So, so we'll, we hope to get some social science results in the next couple of years, and then we'll have to figure out what to do with all that and sort of come up with a holistic plan within the Weather Service wide to to see what we want to do with the tropical cyclone products suite, all the way from the products that we issue here at the National Hurricane Center to the products. That come out of the local uh, weather forecast offices and the, the whole the whole uh, gamut. I've, I've been thinking about, uh, you know, I think about the cone a lot, Mike, <laughs> as you know. Uh, th- one of the things that uh, I think is an unintended consequence of it, which I was kind of alluding to a moment ago, is that the cone is essentially a five-day warning that there's a hurricane coming for your area. And, and therefore, the category of the storm as is displayed by the cone or the strength of the storm as as conveyed by the cone and the information that goes with it uh, gives you this sort of five-day alerting. Uh, and therefore, it becomes the first impression, not only because that's what people look at when they go to the website or when they go to their uh, you know, local 10 weather app and they look or the Max Tracker app, the app, they look at the cone. Uh, not only because of that, but because just the nature of it, it goes out five days uh, and I think my sense is, and I'm just looking for your impression as well, that that overweights the cone and the wind speed and uh, whatnot because it becomes the first impression on what the storm directly means to me. You, you have a thoughts about that? Yeah, that's that's something, you know, people, you know, we, we have to think about the different ways people consume information now, and they consume it sort of in bits and chunks, and there's a lot of places you can get information. So it's you, you can't always assume that the people are going to, you know, fully understand what they're looking at or even consistently look at the same piece of information all the time to assess their risk. So, yeah, there's definitely challenges there. You don't, we can't control how other people might display the forecast information. We can, we can try to do things with our own products. And, you know, we have to, we have to convey the forecast graphically somehow. You know, maybe the cone isn't the best way to do that any longer. Maybe it should be something that is more hazard-based, and we, we hope to sort of look in that direction. But, you know, the other thing I remember from talking to people is that people make decisions based on what the storm is doing now and not necessarily what it's forecast to do when it gets to their area. That was something I remember from talking to people in the Florida Keys after Irma. Is everybody decided to evacuate because Irma was a Category 5. At the time, they made the decision to evacuate, not based on what the forecast was for when it was going to be near the Keys, for example. Right. So you have to think about that in the opposite sense, that there's a, a tropical storm or a tropical depression three or four days away from the Florida Keys or South Florida, and it's forecast to rapidly strengthen into a major hurricane. Are people going to make the wrong decision based on the fact that it's a weak system now, despite the forecast of it being stronger? So there's there's a lot of really interesting social science that work that's gone into people's decision-making about evacuations and making preparations and and in some cases, we found that in, uh, there was a study after Sandy that you know, there's about 20% of the population that really won't do anything regardless of what information you provide them. So we still have to try to figure out how to reach that pretty sizable segment of the population that, that is really resistant to, to moving at all. At one point, there was talk of a seven-day forecast cone. What is it? It's 120 hours, five days now. Right. Uh, so is that seven-day idea still on the table? Yeah, we're doing a we're doing experimental in-house six and seven day forecasts. We've done them on and off for the last several years, and and um, you know, looking at the average errors, they're they're not so bad for say track at six and seven days. They sort of increase on average about forty or fifty miles a day. But mm-hmm. the, one of the bigger concerns we have about going out to seven days is you get these outliers, these uh, storms that are going to have really really large and uh, track errors that might be say more than four or five hundred miles and so you could have a scenario where you're forecasting a storm to recurve in six or seven days and it doesn't the trough misses it and then all of a sudden it's left behind and you can you rack up these really large errors so that's that's a concern about you know sort of do you want to put a forecast out there that could have errors that are this, that those sort of extreme values maybe five to ten percent of the time and then how do you visually convey it six- and seven-day forecast. I don't know if we really want to put a deterministic point on a map for a seven-day forecast of where a tropical cyclone center might be. 
we might want to do something that's more probabilistic or more uh, that, that accounts for the uncertainty. So we need to think about how we would publicly convey or display that type of information because, again, six and seven days out, the uncertainty is just all that much larger. Yeah, and I think that an, an undiscussed issue uh, is the issue of the unwarning. So when you when deterministic forecasts are made, uh, four or five days in advance, uh, for instance, pick up any weather app and you can see as a hurricane is approaching the coast what the weather forecast is uh, for that date, you know, five or six or seven days from now, even though it could be a, a full-on hurricane or it could be, you know, breezy with a chance of showers. Uh, but they're going to come up with some deterministic thing. So if it doesn't seem threatening, there's essentially an unwarning effect there, I think, that people look at it and, and they uh, relax some because uh, obviously if it was if there was danger, the, this uh, weather source that they trust would be giving them information. I think that's what you're talking about with the issue of the seven days and, and uh, the forecast is for it to recurve up into the middle of the Atlantic, but it continues on and it actually uh, arrives that there's some number of people will relax some when they get that first impression of a non-threat. Right. They might tune out and then write the system off as something they never... We, we, well, it almost happened with Florence a couple of times, you know? I mean, this is something we haven't gotten into yet, but the amount of information that's out there about storms now on social media and the Internet is, is just voluminous. And I, I looked at a lot of posts on Twitter that talked about how, well, there's only one or two storms that have ever gotten to where Florence is in the Atlantic that didn't recurve. And how many people looked at those and thought, oh, well, I don't have to worry about Florence even though the forecast was for it to perhaps not recurve and perhaps you know approach the US East Coast. So there's that's a cha real challenge now and I know you've talked about this Brian where you know there's so much information out there. It's ironic, you know, 30 years ago during you know, Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Hugo, the forecasts that we were making were a lot worse, but there was really only one place or two places that people got information from. They got it from local television or they got it from the radio or the newspaper. So it was very easy for people to all be working from the same set of information about the storm, even though the quality of the forecast wasn't very good. Now the forecasts are much, much better, but the information environment that we live in is much more fractured, and people are seeing model posts of uh, track forecast that might be very different from what the Hurricane Center is forecasting. People put those kinds of things on Twitter and Facebook all the time, so it's much easier for people, I think, to be confused about what might happen. And we know from social science that when people get lots of mixed messages and, and different types of information about a, a potential threat to them, their, their default reaction is to just basically not do anything. So we're in a sort of a precarious time where there's so much information out there now that a lot of people really don't know what to make of it in these big, big weather events. It's not just hurricanes. It can be things like blizzards or winter storms or, or other, other hazardous events. Yeah, it, interesting you, you talk about you know blizzards and other storms. I come from, uh, my, my background was I went to school in Oklahoma. I went to the University of Oklahoma, and then I worked for several years in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so did a lot of work with severe weather. And we had, you know, we used a lot of SPC products where we had, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the convective outlook. So days in advance, you would have a color code and slight, enhanced, moderate, high, whatever your risk is. Because uh, we can't tell you where the tornado will be on three days from now. You know, that's way right. out there. And then it would go up a notch, and then you would have a watch, and then eventually a warning. I'm just, I just kind of imagine, would it at all be possible to have a color code similar to that, um, maybe in the shape? I'm imagining like the hurricane wind speed probabilities. You know how you have that fanning of the colors? Mm -hmm. Something yep. like that. Uh, just, just wondering if that would at all be a different um, but effective way to communicate the risk, where it's a color and you could see I'm in the yellow, and as it gets closer, maybe the uh, the color would change, and, and you couldn't have a high risk, for example, until you know two days out or three days out or something. You had to have a certain close amount of time before it arrived, um, and and just as an alternative to what we have as a cone. So, wondering your thoughts yeah. on something like that, and also if uh, what else you guys have in the pipeline at the Hurricane Center. Yeah, actually, the, the local W weather forecast offices have something similar to that, but it's broken out by hazard. There's the graphics that show the wind threat, the rainfall threat, the tornado threat, and the storm surge threat, and in sort of a color-coded way that will change and evolve as the, as the storm approaches. Um, you know, they, they sort of kick in more closer to the watch warning time frame. 
but uh, but yeah, the, the challenge with doing it for tropical cyclones is there's different hazards that vary in time and space uh, from each other. And you know, think of like the rainfall for Florence, you know, was a different uh, sort of threat, say, in southeastern North Carolina than it was in western North Carolina. And the storm surge was happening at a different time in different places versus the wind threat. So we tried to focus on these probabilistic hazard-based products, and we're sort we're sort of getting there. We on our website now we're displaying graphics from the Weather Prediction Center that show the flash flood risk out two or three days in advance that's uh, color-coded very much like the SPC uh, severe weather uh, uh, convective outlooks are, like low, medium, moderate, high. And so we're getting there for storm surge. We have the watch warning. And for wind, we have the wind speed probabilities. And for tornadoes, we do have the SPC product. So we're, we're sort of trending in that direction. But it's really hard to get people to stop focusing on the actual details of the storm. It's almost like the storm trivia, like exactly where the center is, exactly what the central pressure is, exactly what the maximum wind speed is. And people are so tuned to, to getting that information because 20 or 30 years ago, that's really all we could do. We couldn't really get down into the hazards. And now we're sort of in this in-between phase where people are very used to sort of looking at the actual details of the storm and exactly where the center is going to go. And we're trying to transition into this environment where we're much more hazard-based and much more probabilistic in our approach and, and trying to show what the threats are. And your future research uh, on both communications and on science, I guess, is to support this idea of a hazard-based warning system. Yeah, really. I mean, there. yes, and there are, you know, and that's why we have, for example, we now have a separate warning for storm surge than for wind that all used to be tied up in the hurricane warning. Now there's a separate warning for hurricane wind and there's a separate warning for storm surge because you want a different reaction from people who are under threat from storm surge. That's generally the people that are going to want to leave or be asked to evacuate. If you're under hurricane warning, depending on where you live, if you're in South Florida and you're in a, a post-Andrew home with good building uh, codes and everything, you could, should theoretically be able to shelter in place in your house if you're not in the storm surge evacuation zone. I mean, that varies in different parts of the country. But again, trying to get to the response, you know, now in North Carolina, we were just up there talking to them last week about the post-Florence, you know, their impressions at the state and local level. And they were even conducting evacuations for river flooding before the river even rose in certain areas of southeastern North Carolina. So there's different responses at different times and different populations that, that come from all these different hazards. So it's a, it's a real challenge to try to piece it all together, and it's hard to, you can't really come up with one number to describe the storm and its hazards. You have to look at them separately. So, Mike, yeah, we're going to have to cut you loose here because we're, we're taking up your time and, and we're running a little long here. But I wanted to get from you, uh, whether in your background, how you got involved in meteorology. Was there a weather event that came along? That's what most meteorologists say. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, I grew up in uh, southwest Virginia in Roanoke near the Blue Ridge Mountains, Blue Ridge Parkway area. So I was always interested in snow as a kid, but uh, my grandmother lost her home in a flood in November 1985. It was actually the remnants of Tropical Storm Juan that had made landfall along the Gulf Coast. I was about eight years old, and we had a very large-scale flood event in southwest Virginia that uh, a lot of people were affected by, so that was something that I made a big impression on me at that at that age, and uh, I certainly remember that, and that was something I think that kick-started my interest in the field. So uh, just like every, most everyone else, we all have these kind of early, early uh, memorable events that hey. sort of push us in that direction. Exactly, exactly. All right, Dr. Mike Brennan, thank you so much for being with us, Branch Chief of the Hurricane Specialist Unit at the National Hurricane Center. Really appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. All right. Thank Take you. care. Have a good day. All right. So um, lots going on there. I know that that uh, Mike has a lot of ideas, and he and other hurricane specialists, Dan Brown and uh, Robbie Berg, and uh, lots of people that have been at the Hurricane Center for the last decade or so you know, are coming into senior positions now and with a lot of experience, a lot of good ideas. Yeah, yeah, you can tell it. the The yeah. wheels are turning, and there's a lot that he talked about. That uh, it'll be interesting to see the landscape of the forecast five years from now. Yeah, and it's not. Uh, you know, people say, "Why doesn't the National Hurricane Center do this or that?" Including me, uh, but I'm very well aware that that the processes there are very rigorous, mm -hmm. and they they take their time to be sure that they do it right which is the way we would want them to be. Sure. <laughs> Sometimes I wish they would go a little faster. But anyway, that it is the way it is and uh, and they are they are the best at what they do and uh, you know, we're 
really lucky to have them here in South Florida because they live the same weather that we do. You know, and, and that makes them, I think, better at forecasting the weather for South Florida. Yeah, they understand the impact. You know, yeah. it, look at Andrew. It took a almost direct hit. I mean, blew the radar right off the top as, uh, as the forecasters themselves were in in the building while Andrew raged around them. So. And the building was shaking. Yeah, it was, it's quite, uh, quite a tale. It was quite a night. A uh, reminder, the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com. Check out everything they've got going on and discover the winner in you. You know, here we've gone all this time in hurricane season 2018, and uh, it wasn't until just the other day that I realized that we're 125 years from the great, incredible, amazing hurricane season of 1893. You know, if you go back and you study hurricanes and the way weather patterns and hurricane patterns develop, 1893 is uh, just one of those years that, that stands out spectacularly like 2005 for uh, a different set of reasons. I mean, here's the, the part of the list. There were three hurricanes and two tropical storms that went through the northeast U.S. and threatened New York in the well, same year. Three hurricanes, two tropical storms. One hurricane veered off kind of at the last minute. Two other hurricanes made landfall. One went right over New York City, and that was the last hurricane to go directly over New York City. Wow. Of course, Irene was supposed to in 2011, and it turned into a tropical storm right before it uh, it hit. There were also two hurricanes and two tropical storms that hit South Carolina. And one of those hurricanes was the great Sea Island hurricane, it's called, Killed over 2,000 people. Uh, 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 Helen Keller was uh, was there with the Red Cross. Was in in her era and the Red Cross and and she, her estimate was that it was much more than the official estimate that they you know officially were playing it down. So the Sea Island hurricane in in uh, South Carolina was one of these. Uh, sea Islands are the the low lying islands offshore of South Carolina, offshore of the Charleston area. And they had all these farm workers out there and these workers living out there. And they didn't know the hurricane was coming. And the people that survived climbed up into the top of palm trees. And that was the only way uh, they survived. But it was one of those hellacious uh, events. And we also had two hurricanes hit Louisiana, including one that also killed over 2,000 people. And that was called the Chenier Caminata hurricane. Chenier Caminata was a town down on the Barrier Islands. Again, Barrier Islands come into play a lot in those old hurricanes, right? Because they're all flat. The storm surge comes over them, and there's no place to go except uh, up a tree or you get very, very lucky, like in the Florida Keys. You know, people that died there, what did they die from? They died from being on an island with the water from the ocean covering their head and and sweeping across the island. So so all of that happened 125 years ago this and season. Those are just the ones that we know about. You know, right, well, yes. Before the, the satellite era, who knows what else was out there? <laughs> well, yeah, out there in the ocean, you're absolutely right. Uh, although, you know, we, we know pretty much the ones that hit land. Although in 1893, none of them in the record book looked like threats to South Florida, except maybe the South Carolina ones, because they kind of swung toward Florida and then up the coast. So, anyway, that was 1893. But uh, October, here we are. It's October, unbelievably, thankfully. Uh, we're on the downhill side of, of uh, hurricane likelihood here in South Florida. Uh, but October is essentially equal to with September in terms of the likelihood of having a hurricane in our vicinity. And the hurricanes tend to misbehave this time of year, uh, like you were talking about earlier, this this storm that the models are forecasting to come out of some disturbance that really isn't a tropical disturbance, but then it could become tropical. Uh, the, the steering currents are, can be very wacky in October. So we can talk about the, you know, everybody remembers Wilma. And the thing in Wilma that, that I remember most in Wilma, were, well, I guess two things. One is, it seemed like a hellacious hurricane here, even though it was in Miami Data Category 1 in Broward and Palm Beach, parts of Broward and Palm Beach are Category 2. But most people remember Wilma as being a bad hurricane. Mm -hmm. And that's a great lesson, right? That if, if something that you remember as being really bad was basically Category 1 or 2, 
And you remember that the power goes up kind of geometrically with every category. Sure. That should really alert you to category four, threes, and fours, right? Uh, that that we haven't had those recently except for Andrew. And if you didn't go through Andrew, chances are people in Broward and most of Dade, again, went through a category one or two even with Andrew. So why is it, do you think, that Wilma's thought of that way? Um, well, it was the third most expensive hurricane in the history of hurricanes. Uh, and and yet it was a Category 1 uh, in uh, in Miami-Dade. And it did all this damage in Brickell Avenue because it had a, there was a, a, it wasn't a structural failure. It was a failure of the decorative trim on one building that became a debris stream that hit these other glass buildings downstream. And each one created more debris in the stream. So even though we only had a Category 1 in Miami, uh, we ended up with this, these piles of glass and debris and huge glass buildings with, with their windows blown out uh, on Brickell Avenue. So it felt bad. Also, the power was out for, for a good while, and uh, a lot of stuff happened. I mean, uh, we had a lot of flooding from Biscayne Bay. We live in a very vulnerable place, and it doesn't take. If it's called a hurricane— then uh, it's a bad storm by definition. So it goes Katrina, Harvey, Wilma? Well, no, no, I'm saying at the time that Wilma happened. Oh, okay. Okay, at the time it happened. No, since then we've had Ike and Harvey and and Irma and all gotcha. these other storms uh, since then. Uh, Sandy, uh, since then. But at the time that it happened, it was the third most expensive hurricane. It was a $20 billion hurricane. So it was, it was uh, Katrina, Andrew, uh, Wilma mm. at that time. So crazy. But let's just talk for a second about Hurricane Inez. And I, I, I just want to talk about it because it's one of these, another one of these uh, crazy ones. And it was this week in 1966, and it baffled forecasters. Just put yourself in the back in the 60s. Okay, I mean, it's not that long ago. There are actually people alive that were here in the 60s, like me, uh, that... Uh, remember, but I don't remember it, honestly, as being so baffling because we didn't think the hurricanes could be well forecast anyway. But if it all happened this way again, so Cleo came in 64. Remember mm-hmm. remember we talked uh, about Cleo and how they were sure it was going to stay offshore? Yeah. And they, they broadcast it was going to stay offshore, and then it kind of wobbled to the left right over downtown Miami. So that's 1964, Came in as a, uh, I think it probably when it gets reanalyzed, probably going to be a Category 3-ish. And it was kind of a wobble over the city. And it was quite a damaging hurricane. Then the following year, you have Betsy, and Betsy comes along, and it, 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 it misses. It goes up north. They put up hurricane watches for North Carolina. It gets up to Cape Canaveral, and they say in South Florida, the threat is over for South Florida. That mm. was the, from the Weather Bureau. And it stops, nope. turns around, comes back, and just mauls Nassau and uh, comes in across the Keys, Category 3 across the Keys, and breaks the Keys in six places. Is really destructive in the Keys, puts water through the hotels of Miami Beach, kills over 200 animals at the zoo at that time was on Key Biscayne, the Crandon Park Zoo, and does a significant amount of damage. Power was out for more than a week in Coral Gables. After Betsy. That's in 65. So Cleo in 64. 65 is Betsy. Now here comes Inez in 66. Inez is in the Caribbean. It's a Category 4. It's mauling the uh, islands. It was terrible in Dominican Republic and uh, Haiti on the coast there. Comes over Cuba. Uh, and and the expectation is, uh-oh, this could be... Uh, a problem. Well, maybe not. It looks like it's on a path that it's going to just recurve over the Bahamas and go. But instead of coming north, it stops and it goes left and it goes west. And now it's on a track exactly like Cleo coming over Cuba, just like Cleo just two years before. And they get all concerned and then it veers to the right and it goes toward the Bahamas and they go, no problem. And it gets out in the Bahamas, it stalls, it sits, it spins, it's kind of hitting Nassau and uh, the and Andros. And then suddenly, I mean, days go by here. 
like every day it's another message of we're still watching. It's right there. I mean, it's just on the doorstep. So just put yourself in a position of thinking about that today. There's this hurricane. It's right there. It's not going anywhere. The models are kind of all over the place because, as we know, when they're stalled, the the steering currents are indeterminate, Mm -hmm. right? Suddenly, it hangs a hard left and hits Key Largo, exactly where Betsy had hit the year before. But Betsy was a Category 3. This was a Category 1. It still put water through the hotel's on Miami Beach, the ocean crashed through the hotels, salt water into Collins Avenue. Uh, kind of a mess, but not as bad as the year before because the hurricane was not as strong. The 60s were just rough here, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. It was, it was intense, and that was it. That was the end. 1966, Hurricane Inez was the end of it. So in the 60s, we had Donna in 60. Cleo in 64, Betsy in 65, Inez in 66, and that was it until uh, David came along in 79 as a threat but ended up not hitting uh, southeast Florida. It hit uh, Jupiter in the end, but it was a threat. It was an agitation, and everybody was kind of concerned and preparing and so forth. And then after that, it was Andrew. Wow. So 66 to 92. 66 to 92. And, and, and 66 doesn't really count as the big hit. Sure. Because uh, Betsy was the Category 3 before. So anyway, that's, uh, it's an interesting, it's always interesting to think about how those things would, uh, would play out uh, today. And today, what would we do with that? How would we handle that with today's technology? Right, because this is one of those things where constantly they were saying the threat is over. And then, oh, no, it's not. Wait a minute. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, no, it's not. Uh-huh. You know, it, it would be tough. It would be tough. It was a misbehaving storm. So that's our podcast for today. Let me remind you that your podcast is sponsored by your friends at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit com and discover the winner in you. If you have any ideas you'd like us to take up here on the podcast, you can write to us at weatherpod. That's the two words together, weatherpod at com. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross here at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studios in Miami. You'll have a good week. We'll see you again next week, and we're going to talk about the Keys and the hurricanes uh, in the Keys at that time. We'll see you then.